Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this edition, we're focusing on Russia, and my guest is Catherine Belton, author of the much-acclaimed new book, Putin's People. In the past week, Russian voters approved constitutional changes that could allow President Putin to stay in office until 2036, by which time he would be well into his 80s. So is Vladimir Putin set to rule Russia for life? The Putin era began on New Year's Eve at the end of 1999, when the new president was installed in the Kremlin. Since then, Vladimir Putin has run Russia virtually uninterrupted, apart from a four-year period when he stepped aside as president, taking the lesser job of prime minister, and allowing his protege, Dmitry Medvedev, to occupy the presidency for four years. But by 2012, Putin was back in the Kremlin. And I remember visiting Moscow shortly after his intention to return to the presidency was announced and witnessing a big anti-Putin demonstration taking place in the bitter January cold. But Putin was back in power. And two years later came the event that perhaps more than any other has defined his era. The Russian seizure of Crimea from neighboring Ukraine. That event led to a rupture in relations between Russia and the West. But it was greeted with great acclaim back in Moscow, where Putin received a rapturous reception in the Duma, the Russian parliament. Putin's authority and power, however, means that the question of who or what replaces him hovers over Russia. It was certainly very much in the air when I was back in Moscow again last summer to witness another bout of anti-Putin demonstrations. For the moment, the issue appears to have been resolved. Putin could potentially remain in power for another 16 years, and that would mean he'd served longer as Russia's leader even than Stalin himself. Catherine Belton's a former FT correspondent in Moscow who spent many years researching not just Putin, but Putin's people, the group of close allies of the Russian leader, many of them with backgrounds in the KGB, the Soviet Union's intelligence service. So I started by asking Catherine why she thought Putin had taken the decision to effectively become president for life. I think it's because the succession is an issue that's kind of plagued its presidency. They haven't been able to figure it out. They don't know how to hand over power without rocking the boat in a way that's sort of risk-free for Putin himself and for the security men that surround him. They tried to do it with Medvedev in that sort of experiment when Dmitry Medvedev was president from 2008 to 2012. But I think they realized then it's not risk-free even to have somebody who's 10 years 
years younger, like Medvedev, who had always been seen as very malleable and subordinate to Putin. Even then, when he was president, he was openly courted by the US. He was making decisions in favor of the US, such as abstaining from the UN Security Council and a vote on military action in Libya. They weren't very happy with that. And he was also preparing to put his men even further into chunks of the economy that Putin's security men had always traditionally controlled. He was eyeing Rosneft, he was eyeing Gazprom, and I think they realized it was just too risky to allow even someone like that a second term. So they haven't been able to figure it out how to transfer power being risk-free for them. And of course, the way that they've shored up their power in Russia involves various nefarious activities. So it's kind of fraught with all kinds of legal risks for them and not just imperiling their economic positions. So they really were stuck and they had to find another way to sort of either buy time or allow Putin to remain in power. I think he's buying time until they've figured it out because I can't imagine that he'd want to stay president until he's 83. You say they and them uh, were trying to figure it out. Who are you referring to and how much was this a collective decision by a kind of ruling elite? Somebody close to Putin has told me there are two Putins. There is the collective Putin and there is Putin as an individual. But essentially, they are the group of security men who, uh, with Putin, came to power 20 years ago in 2000. This is Igor Sechin, who is his close cohort from St. Petersburg. He was deputy chief of the administration and really he's followed Putin like a shadow wherever he's gone. He's also an ex-KGB operative. We're also talking about Nikolai Patrushev, who'd worked closely with Putin in Leningrad in the 80s. He was the powerful head of the FSB, the Russian Security Services, and now he's the even more powerful head of the Russian Security Council. He's a year older than Putin. He's in many ways sort of molded Putin and been often a couple of steps ahead. And also the people around Putin, KGB connected business allies, such as Gennady Timchenko, who owns Gunvor, which became the world's third biggest oil trader and basically took over most of the country's oil cash flows once Putin's men started picking off the oil sector beginning from 2003 in the onslaught against UCAS. Also, we're talking about Arkady Rotenberg, who is Putin's former judo partner from St. Petersburg, who from 2008 onwards started taking over huge amounts of strategic cash flows through infrastructure contracts. And we're also talking about Yuri Kovalchuk, who happens to be connected to the former KGB and who ran this bank called Bank Russia, which expanded massively under Putin's second term. So these are all the men that he knows for a long time. And these are the men that he, he trusts. And you said that Putin himself, you think, might not actually want to stay on till he was 83. So in a way, that contradicts the idea of the sort of power-hungry dictator who is addicted to this role. In a sense, you're kind of implying he's in some level also trapped by it. Yeah, I think he's hostage to the system that he created. The way they shored up power, the way that he and his security men shored up power makes any transfer of power fraught with risk for them. I mean, you only have to look at the Hodorkovsky case, the way they took over the UCAS oil major. There have been numerous international court rulings showing that their takedown of Russia's once richest man and the takeover of his oil company, which was once Russia's biggest, was politically motivated. 
So if those international court rulings are ever applied within Russia, they lose control of a very important piece of strategic cash flow and they're open to proceedings themselves. And um, your book is subtitled How the KGB Took Back Russia. So how important is that intelligence background to understanding Putin? I think it's really key because he spent his formative years as a KGB officer in Dresden and in Leningrad. And all the time, you know, he was involved in covert operations. When he was in Dresden, he was involved in technology smuggling. They were trying to funnel technology that had been embargoed by the West against any imports of dual use technology that could be used for military means into the Soviet Union. And Dresden was really a key hub for trying to get past that embargo. We know through a defector that he was working closely with somebody called Matthias Warnig, who since became head of Dresdner Bank in Russia and was a very, very close Putin ally. And Mr. Warnig was running a business consultancy, which was part of kind of a group that Putin was working with. And they were recruiting Western scientists and businessmen. And essentially, they were involved also in active measures. We also know from the same defector that Putin was trying to gain hold of poisonous material that didn't leave any trace. uh, And he was trying to do so by planting compromising pornographic material on a professor who held this information. And we also know that he was supposedly handler of a notorious neo-Nazi who went to the West and then returned back to East Germany, where he helped stoke the rise of the far right. And so Putin has really been involved in operating on a covert level since his early 30s. And he continued to do so in many ways when he was back in St. Petersburg. I'm told by people close to him that his main quality is that he's like a chameleon. He sort of fits into his surroundings and he manages to project whatever people want to hear from him. And that's how he was able to rise so successfully and so rapidly through Yeltsin's Kremlin to become his successor. But really, it's the case that very often you can't take what he says at face value. And I think the West only really came to fully understand that after Putin's annexation of Crimea, when he'd been so clearly denying that Russia had anything to do with the annexation, that these so-called little green men, the troops that arrived on the Polinchla, had nothing to do with him, when in fact, a few months later, when everything was done and dusted, he said, actually, yes, that was us. So, you know, he's just very used to kind of operating under the radar rather than openly and transparently as as we in the West are used to. So the other thing you refer to in the title of the book is how Putin, not just with the KGB, took back Russia, you then say, and then took on the West. And I wondered whether you felt as you wrote the book that that was always going to happen, that was always part of the plan. I'm not sure it was initially. I think they always wanted to restore Russia's great power status. I think they came to power with that in mind. And indeed, that's why they began taking over chunks of the strategic economy so that they would be empowered to start projecting Russia's power abroad. But I think it didn't have to necessarily lead to the current sort of hybrid warfare and conflict that we see today. It's been an evolution 
revolutionary process in which when Putin first came to power, he was making overtures to the West, such as granting the US a transit corridor through Central Asia when it was conducting its operations in Afghanistan. But I think Putin was always very transactional. He was always expecting overtures from the West in return. And when the West continued to really ignore Russia and sort of see it as a weak player, thinking that all that was left would be for Russia to join a Western-led global order, that its economy was so weak that it didn't have any choice. I think this essentially has irritated Putin and the security men, and they have railed against the West's continued ignorance of what Russia sees as its sphere of interest in this gradual encroachment of Western power close to it its borders, whether it be through NATO expansion eastwards or this placing of a missile defense shield in Romania and Poland. And we really kind of saw this come to a head in 2007 when Putin gave his speech to the Munich Security Council and railed against the West for ignoring Russia's interests. And they've always been very paranoid as well that the West is intent on encircling Russia and taking over Ukraine. The Orange Revolution in 2004 was very much seen as a Western-inspired plot. And again, this goes back to the way Putin's security men think. This Cold War mentality is almost hardwired into their brains, whether the countries that wanted to join NATO were doing so out of their own free will or not. Putin's KGB men are more or less conditioned to see it as a plot. They see the world in terms of global power struggle and they see Russia as being entitled to have a greater say in the global security architecture. And so when the kind of demands for the say wasn't respected and they were ignored, essentially what we've seen happen is Russia revert under Putin to these kind of covert measures that we're seeing today, whether it's interference in elections, it's funding extreme parties on the left and right in order to destabilize the Western order. Again, we see Putin reverting to type. It's the same as the Soviet Union was in the late 80s when Russia couldn't compete directly, economically, militarily because it wasn't an, an equal partner. Instead, Russia resorts to the tactics of disruption of active measures. It seeks to undermine its enemy rather than confront it directly. You talk about this belief, um, burning belief in Putin and in his inner circle that Russia must be treated as a great power, that it needs to be treated with respect. And that suggests that what's driving them is a form of ideology. But at the same time, you and others detail that they've used their positions to massively enrich themselves. So how do you strike the balance of their motives? Are they driven primarily by ideology or should we understand it more as essentially something driven by corruption? I think very conveniently for them, it's both. I mean, of course, they've justified their asset grab in terms of their restoration of Russia as a great power. And they also see it as their kind of given right to take over these assets through whatever means necessary, whether it's through subverting the court system or simply seizing others' wealth, because they believe that they've saved Russia from collapse under the Yeltsin years and that as the 
savers of Russia. They deserve essentially to live as Russia's new aristocracy. Of course, this is very convenient. And also it's convenient for them to say, you know, well, we've taken over this wealth in order to reassert Russia's role on the world stage. But the problem with it is it's very sort of short-term tactical thinking because once you've taken over the wealth through such a manner, you stimmy investment in your own country because most private business is frightened to invest in their businesses because they know that Putin's Siloviki, the men of force, can at any moment take it over from them through the court system, which is not independent at all. So you end up driving your own economy into stagnation, which negates you from ever really having the right to be treated as an equal player on the world stage. So again, it's short-term tactics in that Russia's security men have taken over the country's wealth, mostly to line their own pockets, but also to divert it into undermining institutions in the West. And it's not really a very constructive long-term tactic that's going to work. So if it's not a viable long-term strategy, how secure do you think Putin actually is? I think it depends now on what happens with the economy. Obviously, Putin has had tremendous luck for most of his presidency. The first two terms, we saw these soaring oil prices, which allowed him to essentially stabilize the country after all the chaos of the Yeltsin years. Then he was able to kind of pull off this this grab for Crimea, which of course, again, boosted his ratings after he returned to power in 2012. And now, in a way, he's running out of trade because we see that the economy is faltering not only because of the pandemic, but also because oil prices are at pretty low levels. I think they're just about managing to make the budget balance. Things were far worse a few months ago when oil prices had indeed plummeted. And so really, they had to rush through this constitutional change because otherwise it was actually unlikely that Putin could even, with falsifications, reap enough support in favour of allowing him to remain president for life. So I think we're going to possibly see a wave of bankruptcies after October when a moratorium on debts will be lifted. I think we're going to see more and more workers out of employment. And this is going to chip away at Putin's traditional base of support within the working class. I think there's more and more dissent now within the Russian elite because you can see this stagnation worrying them. They worry that there aren't going to be any more sources of growth, that Putin and his security men lack any real vision for running the country. Indeed, as one former government minister put it to me, he said, this is what happens when you have KGB men running the country. All they know how to do is conduct black ops. They don't know how to develop or manage the economy. And we've seen that. We've seen them only take over strategic cash flows, divvy it up between themselves, and then divert some of it to undermining institutions in the West. So do you think Putin's likely to face an internal challenge to his authority in spite of this month's referendum? Yes, I think there will be perhaps more challenges to Putin's power along the way. Uh, I can't imagine that he will still be there in 16 years' time. 
But then again, as one Russian tycoon put it to me, he said, how can we oppose them when they have all the power, when they have all the levers of the power? Russian businesses are also worried that the pandemic could be used as an excuse for a further clampdown, that they could be prevented from travel abroad under sort of travel restrictions imposed by the pandemic. And they also worry that the Russian government will more and more make use of surveillance techniques to keep track of who is participating in protests. So I guess we have to see, um, you know, maybe I'm always too perennially optimistic that it's not going to last. Okay, well, we'll leave on your note of perennial optimism nonetheless. Catherine, thank you very much for joining us for a fascinating interview. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That was Catherine Belton ending this edition of the Rachman Review. And if you could spare a few moments, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about the show and how it can improve. We're running a survey which you can find at ft.com slash Rachman Survey. Also, if you'd like some inspiration about what to read this summer, I invite you to take a look at the FT's annual Summer Books series, where our writers and critics have chosen their favourites of 2020 so far. Catherine Belton's book is included, along with over 200 possible other books, to add to your summer reading list at ft.com slash summerbooks2020. And please join us again next week. You can find us in all the usual podcast apps. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.